Uh, Father, thank you for giving us tonight again. Um, thanks for bringing us back to um, to this place and this time, and we pray that you help us um, just think uh, ethically according to your word, and we pray you would give us clarity about what we ought to do in regards to the fifth commandment, and uh, most of all, Lord, we pray that we would continue to point ourselves to Christ and the finished work um, that he accomplished for us. We pray this in his name. Amen. Okay, so we're in, um, we're doing six weeks, and now last week we canceled because of, I got, you know, a little trigger happy on the canceling thing. We didn't need to, probably, sorry about that, probably could have made it work, but um, uh, we will just, we're not going to skip a week, we're just going to keep going until we're done with it, so we're, I'm not, you don't, you're not going to get shortchanged in this thing at all. Uh, I did build in a little bit of buffer space in the schedule, so we'll, we'll be fine um, to bump it back a week. Um, but we're working through the Ten Commandments. That's what this ethics class is kind of framed around and built around. Um, not because and we, we've said this a number of times. We don't we don't study the Old Testament law in a in a way that um, implies that we have to live by these things in order to be saved. Right? We're saved through the finished work of Christ, as He perfectly obeyed the law. Um, our Failure to obey these things doesn't change his love for us or his saving grace in our lives as we trust in him. Uh, but they do give us a framework. They give us a, uh, a picture of how life should work and how it would work best, uh, knowing, all, of course, the whole time that we uh, will never see these things perfectly lived out in human society because we're sinners. Um, that being said, it, 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 does, it is a model. It is a model for, for us. So the Ten Commandments... Um, work in that way that's the purpose of them it's to show how life works best in a, in a fallen world and so we've looked at the first four commandments last week we we just blasted through four commandments um, all of them related basically either to our worship how we relate to god and, or our words and how we speak and so those were kind of the two subjects that we dealt with last time uh, but now, in, from the fifth commandment through the tenth commandment, the, the, all the commandments primarily deal with our relationship with other people. And so that's where we start to, to get a little bit, uh, some really interesting discussions that can come out of this. But the fifth commandment itself, here's where we're going to go. Um, it just says this, verse uh, 12 of Exodus 20 says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. This commandment is restated in, in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a restating of the law that Moses brought to the people in Exodus. So Deuteronomy, literally, that word means second law. Um, it's not that it's a second law as in a different law. But it's a repeating of the law. And so in Deuteronomy, there's a slight nuance here. There's a different a motivation or an additional motivation given for obeying this command. It says, honor your father and your mother. As the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long, and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So Exodus states it as uh, obey your father and mother, or honor your father and mother, uh, that your days may be long. And then Deuteronomy adds that your days may be long, and that it goes well with you in the land. So let's unpack this commandment just in its basic meaning. Um, it's probably not super complicated. It's in black and white, right? But while the first four commandments deal primarily with our relationship to God, the last six deal with our human relationships, but it begins with the family. That's, that's important. 
It's not an accident that the first commandment that primarily relates to our relationship with other people is our relationship within our family units. Uh, that's because the, fa- the family is the foundation for all of society. Um, and, and I think that we, we need to recognize that that is how God has ordered things to work. Um, the church, in the formal sense, uh, didn't start uh, until, well, you could argue it started with Abraham, uh, and, or you could argue that it started in the book of Acts. But um, either way, Adam and Eve and the humanity that they, that they started uh, existed as a family long before there was an institution of church or government or any of that. Those things came as a result of people uh, growing and needing to have more uh, institutions. But the family is the primary institution that exists. And, and that's, that's um, for a number of reasons. And we'll talk about some of those. But, but one of the key things I think we're seeing in our culture today that we need to be careful about and think about is the erosion of the family, right? That the, that the family is being, in some ways, by certain ideologies, is being kind of dis- dismantled or attacked. Um, and that's intentional. Like, it is. It's because if we can erode the family, we can erode the rest of society and whatever the agenda is there from people that, that want to erode the family. So um, there's, there's a lot of tension, obviously, and there's always been tension around this. But the family is the center of, uh, of our relationships with other people. And that's where it starts. Uh, part of this reason is because parents have greater influence than anyone else on the next generation. And therefore, the future of societies and nations. If children honor their parents, they'll learn from them how to live all of life in obedience to God and will know his blessings on their lives. As a father explains to his son, in Proverbs. So Proverbs says a lot about this, but Proverbs 3, 1 and 2 says, my son, do not forget my, di- my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Of course, we know that parents aren't perfect and parents are sinful people, um, but parents have the greatest influence on their kids uh, ultimately. Um, and, and I think that the, the problem is that a lot of parents don't actually um, raise their kids, um, and, and a lot of parents have kind of just kicked the, the can down to other, other parts of society. But um, ideally, in God's world, parents would have uh, the primary responsibility over their kids and would ultimately have the most influence on them. So the, the fifth commandment starts with honor your father and mother. It has a, it has a promise that if you do that, your days will be long in the land, uh, that your days will prosper. And part of that prospering really just comes, like what Proverbs is saying here, a lot of that prospering is just because you're going to actually listen to wise teaching, to teaching that will produce good things. Um, and so that's part of it. But let, let's talk about what it means to honor, because that's the commandment, right? To honor your father and mother. So to honor your father and mother means to treat them with respect, deference, and care. Also to treat them as worthy of honor, as important and significant. Uh, Calvin, John Calvin, I'll be quoting from him quite a bit today. He says quite a lot about this commandment. And uh, he says that there are three parts of the honor that are spoken of in this commandment. There's reverence, there's obedience, 
and there's gratefulness or gratitude. Um, the people of Israel were commanded uh, elsewhere in Leviticus 19.3 that every one of you shall revere his father, his mother and his father. So to the meaning of the commandment to honor is to show respect, to show um, reverence even for our parents. And that, of course, is uh, easier said than done, right, at times. Um, the, the question that we have to ask is how, how can we be grateful for parents if they were awful to us or abusive towards us or neglectful towards us? Um, and that's a real question that should be worked through and, and uh, talked over in, in the safety of um, godly friends or family or uh, a counselor. But uh, obviously the, the issue here is we, we can honor our father and our mother even if they weren't great parents. And that's harder to do uh, than if they are great parents. But it doesn't negate the fact that we're called to honor even if our parents were were difficult for us or hard on us or abusive towards us. Um, the reality is, is that the gospel can bring healing and forgiveness. Um, and, and if nothing else, we have to acknowledge that God has given us life on this earth through our parents, whether we even know them or not, right? Whether we even have a relationship with them or not, we can at least be grateful. We can show that gratitude that Calvin talks about uh, if we if we at least see, hey, God put me on this planet through these people. And, and maybe those people are out of our lives out of necessity. Maybe, they, maybe we don't have to have the closest relationship for various reasons. Uh, but we can be grateful that God has given us life. And he used parents to do that. Rick Warren had a really great quote in The Purpose Driven Life. It's, uh, it's one I go back to time and again. It's much longer than this, than what I have on the screen. But um, I think this, this couple sentences is really, really good. It says, he just says, you're not an accident. Your parents may not have planned you, but God did. He wanted you alive and created you for a purpose. And he goes on to talk about how we can't discover our purpose outside of who God is in Christ. But, but as, as people who wrestle with this, we have to wrestle with honor your father and mother. And it, uh, immediately it shoots to, well, what if my parents weren't good? And, and that's a fair question. So we got to wrestle with that. And of course, you, I would encourage you to speak to, to someone about that if those are struggles you have. But you can st- always point your heart back to Jesus and that he gave you life uh, on this earth for a purpose through your parents. Okay, um, so now we'll talk a little bit. We talked about the meaning of honor, but here's the other part of this is um, obedience. Uh, obedience to parents was included in the Old Testament understanding of this commandment. Elsewhere in uh, Moses' writings, uh, there were several penalties for stubborn and rebellious sons who would not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, or for cursing one's father or mother. Uh, These penalties were, of course, commanded only for the people of Israel. They were, at that time, in that place. Uh, They were part of the Old Covenant. We don't have to continue to live by those, um, those penalties. But I, I think the penalties do show the heart of, uh, of God in this, that, that, that obeying our parents, respecting our parents, being grateful for them is actually um, is a very serious thing to him to the point that he created these, these uh, civil penalties for failing to do that. So 
to honor your father and mother means that you obey them in certain seasons of your life. It uh, means that you honor them and revere them and respect them uh, throughout your life. So that's where, uh, that's where it goes. And then one more thing here on the, just unpacking the commandment itself is that Moses gives us a motivation for this commandment that God would give us a long life. Uh, we need to understand that, I think, through the proper lens. Um, but this commandment specifically rewards uh, th- those who live this out in obedience, that your days may be long in the land. Now, the question is, is that long in the land of Israel? Uh, is that long in the land as in the land that God was going to give them in just about 40 years? Probably, at least partly in, in this. Um, but it is important to notice that, that the Apostle Paul reaffirms this in the New Testament, in the book of Ephesians. He reiterates it. And so there, I think what, what it's really getting at is that uh, by honoring our fathers and mothers, we'll have, uh, we'll have life go better for us, right? And that's really, I think, the heart of this. That's why Deuteronomy adds that it may go well with you. Um, John Frame, and one of the guys we've been uh, studying, Grudem and Frame are kind of the two main main guys we've been using for this class. Uh, he observes that the aspect of blessing was implied in Exodus 20's version of this. And he said, of course, long life is not blessing without prosperity. So as with the fourth commandment, Deuteronomy merely spells out what is already implicit in Exodus. This then is a prominent example of what's taught in hundreds of passages in both the Old and New Testament that God does give blessing in this life in response to obedience to him. Um, and so, of course, we got to be careful with that, right? We can't, we can't verge into uh, prosperity gospel stuff where uh, you will only have a good life if you are obedient to God or that if you're not having a great life, uh, that, that means you're somehow in sin. That's not, we got to be careful with that. There is a connection, though, between honoring the Lord and having a life that uh, is joyful and, and filled with meaning and significance, even if that means that we go through trials and difficulties. Right? I think that James is helpful with this, where he says that we can count it all joy when we go through trials of various kinds. Well, how can we go through joy? How can we have joy through trials? Uh, it's, it's by living under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He, he doesn't take away all of our suffering or all of our pain, but he gives us joy and meaning in the midst of it. And so I think that that's kind of getting at the heart of this uh, promise of long life or prosperity by, by obedience to this. Okay, um, let's, let's talk through some of the implications of the command in terms of the direct command, like the children and the parent relationship. And then we're going to broaden it out and go through uh, other implications that come from this. But here's the responsibility of children from the command. Uh, one is when children are young, they are responsible to obey their parents. Paul's clear about this. He says it in Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Obey your parents right in the Lord, for this is right. And then he goes on to quote the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So when children are young and they're living at home and they're under your roof, their responsibility is to obey their parents. 
However, this, this obedience to parents is not uh, ultimate. It doesn't take precedence over obedience to God. Uh, and that's going to become a key thing that we talk about all the way through this class. As we talk about human authorities, as we talk about how we are to live in relationship to the people above us in authority, uh, there's always a caveat. And that is that God is the highest authority and he takes precedence. Uh, we don't we don't obey our parents to the detriment of obedience to the Lord. That's what Paul says when he says, obey your parents in the Lord. He's, he's indicating that loyalty to God takes priority even over obedience to one's parents. Now, there are times where parents, being that they are sinful like everybody else, uh, can uh, ask or demand uh, of sinful things of their children. Um, I had um, a friend who became a Christian. His parents were not Christians, uh, and they got really mad that he became a Christian. And so they for, forbade him from uh, reading the Bible, and he knew he needed to read the Bible to be a Christian that was growing in his faith. And so he would do it behind their back, and he rebelled in that way. Mm-hmm. Was, that an, was that a breaking of the commandment? Well, no, because God is calling him to that love for him first. Uh, so that's, I think that's just kind of a crazy example. It's hard to believe that parents would be like that, but they, they are um, at times, depending on what their worldview is and what they, what they think. So um, there are, of course, uh, that's, that's the point I'm making, is that there's a caveat to this obedience. Even if you're under your parents' authority as a child, um, you don't have uh, the, resp- the obligation to obey them to the detriment of your relationship with, with Christ. Um, secondly, uh, when, when children become adults, they must still honor their parents, but they're not required to obey them. So sometimes adult Christians uh, read Ephesians 6, 1, and they think to themselves, well, this tells me to obey my parents. Um, and they apply that to their grown lives outside of their, their, you know, fam- their, their parents' home and in their own households. But, um, and, and they'll say, well, doesn't it say children obey your parents? parents in the Lord for this is right. But what that, that view is, is a misapplication of this text. It's a, it's a bad interpretation. It's a bad understanding of it. Because children uh, refers to a specific group of people. Children. Right? Like kids who are under their parents' homes. Paul does not say in this text, all of you obey your parents. He says, children obey your parents. The category of children is different from the category of all the people in the church. Paul does not say, all of you obey your parents for your entire lives. He's not even implying that, right? So just as, uh, and just prior to this, Paul instructs the, uh, the husbands and wives in this church that he's writing to in, in Ephesians, in the uh, church in Ephesus. And no one's going to read those passages and go, well, that's universal for everyone, right? When you see a passage that says husbands, and you go, I'm not a husband, well, then that, that's not applying to you, right? Or wife, and you're not a wife, then that doesn't apply to you. That's a specific group of people that Paul's addressing in that particular situation. And so with children, it's the same deal. It's the same deal. They are, that's a category of people. So as adults, as we grow and we move out of our parents' homes, we get married or we establish our own families or whatever the case is, once we become independent adults, uh, we're not required 
to obey our parents. We are required, though, to honor them, respect them. In fact, the idea of adult leaving uh, their parents' house and forming a new household goes all the way back to creation. This is this is like how it works. This is what we're supposed to do, right? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so there's a there's a leaving and there's a cleaving, right? That's that's the the old you know King James version of it is to leave and cleave, and and so we we establish new households. We've been doing that since the beginning of time. So get married, have children, repeat. That's the pattern. That's what, that's what God wants. Now, of course, not everyone's going to be called to marriage. Not everyone's going to be called to have children. Okay, get, I get that. But as humanity, generally speaking, that is the pattern that God has set for us. Um, so uh, honoring, respecting, showing love towards our parents, that's vital. Uh, but obedience is not required if we're not under their household uh, as children. Um, another responsibility of, of children is that when parents grow older, their children are responsible to care for them as necessary and as they are able. So um, in the early church, Paul addressed an issue uh, that, that came up, and that was for how to care for widows. Um, there, was a, there was an influx of uh, women who had husbands that died, and there, this was a course of time when there was no no like social net or safety net under the the government. There was no social security. There were really no job opportunities, uh, at least not significantly for women in that time and culture. And so what happened is is that women who weren't married anymore, either due to their, their husbands leaving them or due to them dying or whatever, they were in a very bad economic position. And so what is, what is the church to do in that? Does the church have a responsibility to help them? And Paul's answer to that question is, yes, it does. The church should care for widows. But before the church becomes involved, he says that children of the widows should first do their part. He makes a very clear uh, distinction between widows who have their own children. And then he says widows who are truly widows meaning there's no one in their life who can step in and do this. And he makes that distinction, and he says there's a group of people who, if, if uh, an older woman whose husband dies and they're childless, and there's no one there, in that, of course, in that time, in that social structure, to care for her and to provide financially for her, uh, then the church should step in and help that, that situation. Um, but if the, if the woman has children, then the children are responsible for taking care of their mother. And so that's, that's an important point. And I think today, of course, it's different for us because we live in a different time. There is more uh, assistance on the government. Now, I'm not saying we should just bank on all of that. Of course, this, I think the principle here is still very important. Um, sometimes caring for our aging parents involves financial support. Sometimes. It's, it's a circumstantial issue. Sometimes it involves taking an aging parent uh, into one's home or helping them make provisions for uh, professional care or helping them move into assisted living facilities. Every situation is different and every situation has to be evaluated for what's appropriate and uh, for what's feasible and realistic, right? So, but I think Paul's instructions to the church makes it clear that children have a significant responsibility for somehow caring 
for their parents or seeing that they were, are, are well cared for uh, so far as they're able to do this. So if nothing else, regular visits, correspondence, telephone calls, uh, all of these things are important responsibilities as, as parents age. Um, and then again, we see that children are, uh, must respect the independence and property rights of their parents while their parents are still living. Scripture views positively the tradition of parents leaving an inheritance to their children, maybe even their grandchildren. Right? Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Um, but because some children expect that that inheritance uh, already belongs to them, they, they can step in where they actually shouldn't step in. And so I think it's important that, that children recognize that the, the money and the property that their parents own is theirs until it's not, until it's given to them or, uh, is, um, or they pass away and they inherit it to you. We see it, uh, the negative side of this modeled in Scripture uh, in the parable of the prodigal son, right? The prodigal son, as Jesus tells that story, it was, a, it was obviously a story that was fictionalized as a, as a way to make a point. But he, he sh- talks about a young son who uh, basically demands his inheritance from his father while his father was still alive. And the shamefulness of that whole act uh, just kind of hits home at the point of the parable. We also see it in Absalom in the Old Testament with David. And when David was still alive and on the throne, Absalom uh, tried to take the throne from his father David. He created a conspiracy to, to overthrow David from his throne. And that's um, obviously not presented as a positive thing. Right? You don't, so, so the property rights and independence of the parents while they're still living is, is needing to be respected. Um, so until the parents actually die or give some of their property to their children, it still belongs to them. Uh, Proverbs twenty eight twenty four says, whoever robs his father or his mother and says, that is no transgression, is a companion to a man who destroys. So in other words, we can think in our heads, it's not a transgression, transgression to, to steal from mom and dad because that stuff's just mine anyways. And then the proverb says, well, that's, that's wrong. It is actually still stealing even if it's from your parents. So that's the responsibility of children. What about the responsibility of parents? How do, how do the parents step into this? Uh, first is to love. Uh, the Bible frequently assumes that parents will love their children, although it almost never directly commands them to do this. That's what's interesting. It does directly command us to love our neighbors, to love every, you know, everyone, ultimately, and that would include our children. But it's, it's interesting that it never has to say, or very rarely at least has to say, you, you must love your children uh, because it's kind of built in to the thing. Like it's, it's sort of an sort of obvious thing that a parent should love their children. Um, of course, things get wacky and sinful and, and broken and doesn't always happen. Uh, but it should, and it's kind of an assumption. Um, this is evident in passages like God's words to Abraham. As he uh, tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, he doesn't go, let him go through with it. That should be important to note. Um, but he, does, he, he asks Abraham to give him the gift of his only son. And he says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. There's just like, 
God doesn't have to tell Abraham to love Isaac. He just does. He knows he does, right? It's not a command that has to be given. Or, or we can think about David's grief, incredible grief, even after Absalom, who had just tried to kill David and overthrow him uh, from the throne. When Absalom dies, David has a massive breakdown and just is so broken over his son's death, even, even though this was the son that was trying to kill him. So there, there's this fatherly love, even in David's heart for Absalom. And then when David writes Psalm 103, he says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So God's love and God's compassion is connected to a father's compassion. Like there's just a default thing here that fathers and mothers love their kids. And just as fathers and mothers love their kids, so God loves and has compassion on those who fear him. So that's, that's interesting. Um, Jesus also shows us this in a, through a negative example of how like, ridiculous it would be for a father to not lovingly provide for his children. He, he says in Luke 11, 11 through 13, What father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, he will give him a scorpion. If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So Jesus is just making this point through kind of a negative example. He's saying, of course, God's going to give you his greatest gift of the spirit. And just think about how crazy it would be for a father to not give a good thing to his kids when he's asking for a good thing. You're not going to give your kids something that will harm them when they're asking for something that will feed them. That's the point he's making there. So love is, is uh, the first responsibility. Second is discipline. Uh, parents are responsible for having obedient children. Scripture is emphatic in teaching that. Parents, and especially fathers, are responsible for having their children under control, not defiant of parental authority, but respectful and obedient. So um, it is it is primarily landing on the father to, to do this in the scriptures. The scriptures primarily talk about fathers disciplining their children. Uh, that doesn't mean mothers can't or shouldn't. It, it just means that fathers have a unique role in the leadership in this regard. Um, but one of the reasons why we're called as fathers to discipline our children is because if we don't teach and instruct our children to be uh, respectful of our authority, they're not going to be respectful of other authorities. You're setting them up for failure in life. So if you can't get your kids to, to respect you as a parent who has a kind of a built-in natural like, relationship with your children, how are you going to expect your children to be respectful of other authorities in the world? So that's where it starts. Now, discipline uh, can be a variety of things, okay, when we talk about this. Um, it depends on the circumstances, it depends on the age and the personality of the children. Um, God himself disciplines us, we're told in Hebrews uh, verse, uh, chapter 12, that he disciplines us and he disciplines us in a variety of ways that are appropriate for us and our circumstances and, and our maturity levels. Um, God is a wise father. We should be wise parents. Uh, and so we should seek to find effective methods of discipline that are appropriate for each child and each circumstance. So of course this this inevitably gets into the question the ethical question of is it okay to spank children 
uh, what, is the, what is the appropriate way to discipline children? And um, I, I think, again, it just depends. It depends on the child. It depends on where they are in life, where they are in their stage of life and their age. Um, I'm, I'm an advocate that I think spanking does work if the children are very young, like under five. I think once the child turns five and is older, that ship has sailed. Uh, you've you've kind of lost your opportunity there, and I think that's unfortunate uh, because children before they're five really don't like make the connection logically in their brains that the pain in their butt is from you. It's just like, oh, I did that thing and now my butt hurts. Maybe I should like not do that again. There's just something weird there. But once you turn five, you start to see that those connections being made, and that's. That's where it's like I've seen a lot of parents who did not discipline their kids really in any way before they were five. And then they're five and now they're little terrorists and they're just being awful. And then they try to start spanking because they, they're desperate. And then it just backfires and it's just it's like I, – so I, I tell people I'm not, I'm not a perfect parent. I haven't done everything right by any means. But I do think that there's a wisdom in saying you need to do the hard work on, on the, in the early years – you need to do what is difficult to do in, in terms of caring for your children in that way and, and nipping things in the bud, as they say, you know, as, um, and, and in order to, to kind of stem the crazy rebellion that you could see as they get into five, six, seven. Yeah, John, I want to hear this. Can, can we talk? Absolutely. Yeah. I heard that once before. Mm-hmm. And also, if we all think back as to our first memories or what yeah. we remember, you don't remember much from six. Right. Yeah. Which is an important point. Exactly. Right. You don't. You don't. I. I asked. uh, I think my. I think I asked my oldest son, who's he's ten. I said, "Did you? uh, Do you remember any of the times I spanked you?" And he was like, "Mm, "Not really. No." Um, Because I really, I really have, not really ever had to spank him since he's been, you know, five, six, seven years old. Because. You know, we did the hard work on the front end. Now he still gets punished. He still does stupid things. Right? He's a kid. He's you know we all do, um, but but for the most part, you know, children when they're very young, they're they're very um, yeah, they're they're malleable. They they change and they'll change course. So I think that's important. And I think a lot of times we live in a we're living in kind of a society where we're really afraid. Part of it is we're afraid of what's going to happen to us if if we're caught you know, spanking our kids. And I understand that. And that's, yeah, we got we to gotta be careful on this. And, and, and I really want to make this point is that spanking is not the same as beating. Like there can, you can cross lines. Of course you can. Um, and you should never cross those lines. Uh, you should never abuse your children in any physical or emotional way, of course. Um, but, I, but I think there's a difference. And we've, we've sort of gone so far on the other side where it's like, Man, we, we're just afraid of abuse, so we just now don't do anything, do any disciplining. And that's creating an even worse problem in some ways. Um, there is a really good resource I want to recommend to you. Any of you, I know some, a lot of you are out of this stage of life or are not yet in this stage of life. Uh, but if you need a, a parenting uh, handbook, this, this Shepherding a Child's Heart by Ted Tripp. Uh, Ted Tripp is Paul, Paul Tripp's brother. And uh, if you know who Paul Tripp is, I don't know. But um, Ted Tripp is, uh, this, this is one of the best books on, on raising children. I have a whole stack in my office. If you ever want a copy, I'll give one to you. Um, he has a whole resource in the back on basically um, how, to, how to go about discipline 
at every like kind of stage of life. So from very young to kind of the middle elementary age to middle school to high school. And, and so, and it changes. It's obviously different for all those stages of life. So he's got a really great book on, on that and wisdom on that. So there you go. I'm just giving you a resource. Um, another responsibility of parents is patience and understanding. So in, dis- in addition to love and discipline, the Bible spe- uh, specifies that parents are responsible to show patience and understanding toward their children. So this is where we get into the issue of discipline. It needs to be uh, brought alongside patience and understanding and compassion. Uh, otherwise, we are going to verge into uh, cruelty and, and, uh, and abuse, and we want to avoid that. And so we're called to demonstrate these things, patience, understanding towards our kids so that we, un- so that we know when it's necessary to discipline and when, and when we know when it's not. Uh, so Ephesians 6, again, where Paul instructs parents and children, he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So what this means is that discipline should not be overly harsh or overly demanding because that's going to frustrate your children and provoke them to anger. On the other hand, children are also provoked to anger when they experience no discipline at all, um, especially from their fathers. So, so you actually do see that most of the time when a, when a child is really acting out, it's either because of one extreme or the other. It's either heavy-handedness uh, on the part of parents and parents, and I'm not meaning heavy handedness just in the form of abuse, but I mean, uh, sometimes parents are so concerned about their image and how their children reflect back on them that they're going to be trying to crush them down to make sure that they're perfectly obedient little babies and not going to cause any anything bad to come back on them. And that's a heart problem in the parent. To We need to fight that impulse. Um, but at the same time, children can also be really, really difficult when they receive no discipline at all in their, in their daily lives. Uh, children really do thrive on routine as much as uh, we may not. They, they, need, they need that, and they need that to, to function well. So, that's, uh, so we're called to uh, encouragement. We're, in, we're called to patience. We're called to not provoke our children to anger, particularly as fathers. Um, and then finally, instruction. Again, this is in that same, same passage we just looked at, that we are to bring children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So instruction includes teaching them about God and his ways. And uh, much of the book of Proverbs consists of this uh, teaching of uh, God's ways from mothers and fathers to their children. Proverbs 1.8 says, uh, hear my son your father's instruction and, for, and forsake not your mother's teaching. So father's instructing, mother's teaching, those words are the same. They're just different words for the same thing. And, and children are to respond to that. You also see that repeated in Proverbs um, 2, one, three, one, four, one, five, one, six, one, and 7, 1. So it is, uh, it's, it's, a, it's repeated many, many times in some form or another. So instruction, where parents are obviously called to teach their children the spiritual truths of the scriptures, but, but also are responsible for dis- discerning what their, uh, what their children need as far as education more broadly. So this leads to a good question. This is, like, this is one that we need to talk about probably. Is what about school choice? And what do we do with our kids? 
Um, do we do we homeschool exclusively? Do we public school exclusively? Do we find some private school? Um, and I don't have any like slides about this. I'm just gonna kind of give you my my two cents. Um, I think it just depends on the kid and the situation and the circumstances of the the family. Um, for my part, uh, I public school. We public school our kids. Uh, they go to White Lake. Um, we think that's a really good district, at least right now. It's they're doing great. We're we're happy with it. We think it's working well. Um, our kids are thriving there, and I have no guilt or shame about public schooling my kids at this point. But I know a lot of Christians do. You know, they struggle with with this, um, and and I think that here's what I think about the schooling thing is I think you can have bad reasons to do any form of school and you can have good reasons to do any form of school. So a lot of people homeschool uh, and a bad reason to homeschool would be you are afraid of the the bad influences and, and your babies are just going to be terrible people. That's That's a fear that you need to bring to the Lord Jesus and trust him. Um, with that said, uh, there's bad reasons to public school. Like, I just want to dump my kids off at the government institution and let the government raise my kids. That's a bad motivation to public school. Uh, private schooling is kind of like sort of trying to meet in the middle. And I think that that's okay. Like, I think uh, it, it depends on the, the private school. Some are terrible. Like, just don't have good standards, don't have, like, good teachers, um, some have great situations going on. So uh, there's a lot of, there can be bad education in all of these, right? Some parents are not equipped to teach their kids in homeschooling. Like they're just not equipped. And so they're, they're going to do a bad job of teaching their kids because they're not equipped for that. And uh, there can be really bad public schools and, and really bad private schools. So the, the issue I think is not a one size fits all situation. I think it is a, a situation where you have to evaluate what are your priorities as a family? How do you want your kids, um, you know, to like, where, where do you, where do you want your kids to be, be involved in? Do you want them to be involved with other non-Christian kids or non-Christian kids and have an influence in the school system that way? Or do you want to have flexibility as a family? And so you're going to keep them home. Like there's all kinds of variations and there's no right answer to it. Uh, so I think on, on the uh, our elder board here at the church, I think we all we all do different things. Actually, I think all of us have our kids in different situations. Uh, I'm public schooling. I think I'm the only one public schooling. Um, and then we got one one family that's homeschooling. We got a family that's doing a private school situation. Um, a couple actually of these guys do a private school thing. Uh, so it, it it's all fine. Like it it works. Like, I for my part, I was partly homeschooled and partly public schooled, um, and I came out of the public school system, and I still loved Jesus, and I, and I wasn't worshiping Satan, and I, you know, like that that always seems to be the fear, right? The fear is, well, if I send my kids to public school, they're gonna worship the devil or something, and no, no, because again, the parent is the primary response, like the primary influence, and if you're a parent who loves the Lord and actually loves your kids, um, whether they're educated outside of the home or inside the home, they're, they're going to be loved, nurtured, cared for, and, uh, and ultimately pointed to Jesus. And so, 
yeah, I don't know. Does anybody have thoughts on that? I, I'm actually at the end of that, that section. So uh, any thoughts on schooling options? Anyone want to get into a fight about homeschool versus public school? Or, uh, you know, I think, I think it's one of those things that people get really up in arms about and are very convicted about, and that's fine. Like, follow your heart in that and follow what you think the Lord wants you to do. But don't judge others for, I don't think you should judge others for the choices that they make for their kids. I think every, every situation is different. Um, yeah. any, any thoughts or questions on that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, would, just a curious question. Would you ever present this on parenting um, if somebody set up a class? A one-on-one class? Sure. Yeah. You know, and, I, and I'll tell you, I think you know I'm going for calling a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one of the big things is one of the goals or strategic um, items for the county is help parents be better parents, mm. not verbatim. Yeah. It's a big issue right now. Yeah. Not only here, at, you know better than I, all yeah. over. Oh, yeah. But, boy, you sure, Tommy, you did it in such a nice fashion. Mm. Thanks. Yeah, you did. I mean, mm. as far as the discipline and respect and honor, and mm-hmm. it's all right there. And it, it's, I, I whispered to Tammy, you should have had this when we were 24, not 64. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, the... Yeah, and, mm. and it's just as far as painting when they're younger and and you can abuse their emotion as well as their physical. Yeah, yep. for sure. Um, like we've seen it, you know, we've seen it in different... So anyway. Yeah. All right. That's cool. Yeah, thanks. And Tom, the school thing? Yeah. The parents are their biggest influence. Yeah. So they're with you 16 hours a day mm. and they're at school 8 hours a day. So I yeah. don't think that school's going to tear somebody apart in 8 right. hours a day. right. But I think too many parents are thinking school is supposed to take care of their kids in that eight hours a day. Right. It's supposed to being involved with your kids and what's going on at school. Yeah, I think being a, being an engaged parent, being active in the school, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. being around. You know, I, I think there's, you know, there was a at some point um, not too long ago. I remember there was kind of a, a stir up about some some teachers who were kind of making the the, the claim on social media that we actually raise these kids, like where, where are their kids' parents, you know? And it was sort of an arrogant thing for them to say, but there's a, there's a truth sort of in that, where, where when you have parents that are truly just dumping their kids off at the government school to let the government raise their kids, like a lot of these teachers are going to have this feel, feeling that we need to care for these kids while we have them. And that can lead to, obviously, them importing their their particular worldviews on children that maybe aren't shared by the parents. Um, but yes, I think if, like, I'm sure my kids are hearing things that I wouldn't agree with 100% on, on like, worldview things or, you know, I don't know that they've really been taught much on evolution yet at this point or all those things. But, but at the end of the day, we're always reinforcing when they come home and they say something that we are like, oh, not exactly right. Let's talk about that. And let's... And, and hopefully what we're doing is we're building, uh, we've built enough of a respect and a rapport and, and love and, and care for our kids that they're going to hear what we say and go, okay, I kind of trust mom and dad. Maybe I trust them more than I trust this other thing that I'm hearing. Who knows, right? And but Right, right. And I think tr- trying to draw the kids out, and, and I, 
they have a they have a class like once a week called guidance and that that kind of makes me a little nervous like what is what are you guiding my kids to do so i always ask them like well what are you learning what are they teaching you in guidance and so far it's like eat healthy food um don't bully people okay all so far so good um but if it ever gets kind of wonky we'll we'll deal with that you know and address it but but i'm not worried that my kids are going to become you know Satanist or something just because <laughs> they're in public school. And, but, you know, yeah. the, the twins are in their third day of public school. Okay, yeah. And um, so it's interesting. But Owen's quote-unquote today was there are a few weird kids running around, but there's way, way more good kids mm. around. So yeah, that's good. The fact that you can, you know, you can easily differentiate that. It's you good. Know, you know where to go. Yeah, yeah. that's cool. Yeah. Oh, good. Well, let's um, let's move on to some of the other ways that this this command applies because we've just been talking about the family, but this does have a broader application. Uh, again, Calvin here, John Calvin, he he understood this command to be, uh, in a broader sense, God's requirement that we be subject to all legitimate human authority that's over us. And here's what he said about that: He said, "Now this precept or this command of subjugation strongly conflicts with the depravity of human nature." which swollen with the longing of, for lofty position bears subjective uh, subjection grudgingly. Accordingly, he has put forward as an example that kind of superiority, which uh, is by nature most amiable and least invidious. This is all big words, right? Uh, because he could uh, thus more easily soften and bend our minds to the habit of submission. So what he's saying there, let me just translate that. He's, he's saying that God gave us our, the authority of our parents because that's a much easier pill to swallow than the other forms of authority that we're going to encounter in life. We're going to have bosses. We're going to have governments. We're going to have all kinds of things to deal with. Um, and those are much worse at times than our, our parents. So the parents is a little bit of an easier pill to swallow. That's what Calvin is saying. So he says, by that submission, which is easiest to tolerate, meaning mom and dad, the Lord, therefore, gradually accustoms us to all lawful subjugation or, or sub- submission. Um, so there's all kinds of different ways that we are, um, we are placed under authority. And we're going to talk about just a, a few of those ways. And so one, the first one we'll talk about is still in relation to the family. We won't spend a ton of time on this, but uh, that is um, marriage. That there is a, an equality and a leadership in marriage. Uh, so men and women have equal value and dignity. The Bible's very clear about this. Um, the, the first chapter of the Bible says that men and women were created in the image of God. And the first verse uh, that tells us that God created human beings also tells us that both male and female are image bearers of God. So to be created in God's image is an incredible privilege. Right? It means that human beings are like God and they re- represent God. So no other creature in all of creation is like this. Not even angels are said to be made in the image of God, only men and women. So men and women have equality in our creation uh, from God. But men and women also have different roles within marriage as part of the created order. And there's a, there's a big statement here called the Danvers Statement. Uh, basically, the, the idea here is that husbands and wives are of equal worth before God. No question there, uh, since both are created in God's image. The marriage relationship models the way that God relates to his people. A husband is to love his wife 
as Christ loved the church. And he has a God-given responsibility to provide for, to protect, and to lead his family. That's how we, we live out our, our end of the deal as, as husbands, to lead and protect and provide. A, a wife is to submit herself graciously to the servant leadership of her husband, even as the church willingly submits to the headship of Christ. So she being in the image of God as her husband, as is her husband, and thus equal to him, has the God-given responsibility to respect her husband and serve as his helper in managing the household and nurturing the next generation. Um, so that statement from the Danvers statement is just basically making the, the case that um, men and women have equality before God, but they also have different responsibilities within the home and the family and the, and the marriage itself, and that husbands are called to lead and, and protect and provide predominantly, and wives are called to respect and uh, graciously submit to, to her husband's leadership while not being uh, you know, overly... Uh, dormant in this. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But this whole, di- this whole picture of uh, uh, husband leadership and um, everything here is, is found in Ephesians 5. You can read that chapter, but it, it starts with husbands love your wives. It actually starts with wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, and then it says husbands love your wives. So uh, from the very beginning of creation, marriage was meant to be a picture, uh, an imperfect one, of course, because we're sinful, People, but a picture of our relationship between Christ and the church. So when the Apostle Paul discusses marriage, um, he, he, does not, um, he doesn't look back on any Old Testament sections to, to show us what we should do. He's, he's looking really all the way back to Genesis 2 in the created order and then saying that this is actually a connection to Christ. So in um, there's a little graph here, um, but... There can be distortions of this, of course, right? And that's where most of the pushback comes from. When we, when we struggle with this, it's because we've seen it go badly. And there's a couple ways that this goes badly. Um, there's the passive errors, and then there's the aggressive errors. And then there's the biblical ideal there in the middle. And so when a husband is passive, he's just kind of a wimp. He's just kind of sitting on the couch, just not really engaged, uh, not really wanting to be involved, uh, when a husband's ag- aggressive, he's a tyrant. You know, he's, he's just trying to dominate the household. He's being cruel to his wife and his children. Um, when a wife is passive, she's a, more or less a doormat, just sort of lets the husband do whatever, doesn't really engage, doesn't really uh, talk, uh, bring her thoughts into the process. Or if she's being on the aggressive side, uh, a usurper, she's where she's trying to undermine her husband and take away his authority. So the biblical model or ideal here would be that a husband lovingly, humbly leads and the wife joyfully, intelligently submits. So this doesn't mean that wives as uh, being led by our husbands means that we don't speak our minds, that we don't share, that you don't share your thoughts, that you don't address uh, the, the issue, that you don't point out the things that you're seeing that are, that are problematic in your husband's life or his, his leadership. Uh, but you just, you do so in a way that is, um, respectful and joyful. Um, and, and husbands ought to respond in love and humility and the willingness to lay down their preferences for the good of their wife. That's the picture. That's the ideal picture. So God's intentions for husbands is to provide loving leadership, wives to provide a respectful submission in marriage. And most marriage struggles uh, can be traced back to a failure in one or both of those. 
Um, I've, I've done uh, my fair share of marriage counseling, and it's almost always uh, that when I, when I meet with people who are struggling in their marriage. It's one or the two. It's either the husband is being a complete jerk, he's not loving his wife, or, or the wife is, is trying to dominate the situation, or the husband is just sitting back doing nothing, or the wife is just sitting back, not engaged and not doing anything to, to help the marriage. So it's always one of those things is off base, uh, or maybe multiple things are off base. So, so as we see that, that's, that's, um, that is a relationship in which there is authority and there's leadership and all those things. So I bring that up here. Um, one more uh, kind of main area that we're going to talk about, and this is going to, we're going to spend a bit of time on this because uh, I think this is a, a big question in our day, is that what's the role of civil, civil government? And, and I think we all, we should all agree, we, we're under the leadership of a government. Uh, we live in the United States. We have to live by its laws. And so what does that look like uh, for Christians? So I just want to I just put on this first slide here that uh, there's there's too much we could say about this. <laughs> there's there are so many nuances. We can't address it all, of course. But I want to take us to Romans 13, 1 to 7, because I think that's a passage. There are others uh, that we could go to, but I think this is a passage that that really lays out um, the Christians call to submission to government um, and how that looks um, and, and it's important to know, cause we read these, we read this through the lens of a, of 21st century American context, but Paul wrote the words of Romans 13 to a Roman context in the first century where, uh, more than likely it was, it was either, uh, a Nero who was, got, who was, um, emperor, or it was perhaps Domitian, but either of them were awful, um, and, and actually had official policies in the Roman Empire to uh, persecute Christians. Okay, so that's like that was official policy of, of the Roman Empire at that time. That policy didn't change until 325 or so when Constantine um, supposedly became a Christian. That's debatable whether he actually did or not, but uh, he, he made pro-Christian um, f- policies at least in 325. So Several hundred years before that, or at least a couple hundred years before that, Paul's writing to a group that is not in a very friendly government situation, but he, he says a lot to them about it. Here's, so this is the passage. It's Romans 13, 1 to 7. It just says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoer. Therefore, be, uh, one must be in sub, uh, subjection, uh, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Uh, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom? Taxes are owed 
Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. All right, so that's the passage from Romans 13. Let's unpack some of this. Um, First point I want to draw out is this, that God has appointed the authorities who have governmental power. So I've said this many times. I will say it many more times, I'm sure, as time goes on. Larry Osborne says in his book, Thriving in Babylon, that God's in charge of who's in charge. That's, that's, we just have to come to grips with that or else we're always going to be perpetually frustrated. God is in charge of who's in charge. God has appointed the authorities who have governmental power. Verse 1 and 2 of that passage says there's no authority except from God. No authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Jesus affirms this in John 19 as he's standing before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. And he, he says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. So uh, Pilate had just told Jesus that he has the authority to kill this man or, or to let him live. And then Jesus responds with, now nah, you wouldn't have authority uh, if God hadn't given it to you. Okay, so, so God has appointed the authorities. Uh, we, need to, we need to see that first. Secondly, we see in this passage in verse 3 that civil rulers are to be a deterrent to evil. Romans 13.3 states that rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. So what that means is that they are to restrain evil by the threat of punishment for wrongdoing. Um, this is why we need to have prison systems. This is why we need to have a justice system. This is those who do wrong ought to be uh, brought to justice. Now, this is not always applied well, of course, but um, but that's that's the role that civil governments have been given. That and this is consistent with Old Testament teaching. Um, Genesis nine five and six talks about this. We're going to actually unpack this a lot more next week. Um, we're going to talk about. Um, the, the commandment that says you shall not murder. And so we're going to talk about life and death and some of those things. And, um, and we'll talk about the role of government and some of that a little more. But um, thirdly, we see that civil rulers give approval or praise to those who do what is good. Right? So still in verse 3, it says ruler, the ruler is God's servant for your good. Uh, well, that's in verse 4, I'm sorry. And then so but basically these, these verses... Uh, tell us that the government has a role in promoting the common good of society. So it's not only that they're punishing wrongdoing, which is one of the roles that they have, they should also encourage and reward good conduct, um, behavior that contributes to the good of society. Um, So let me give you some examples that Wayne Grudem pointed out about this. Um, One example he cites in his opinion uh, that is a good thing that government does, is tax-supported playgrounds and parks. Uh, families can picnic there, sports teams can practice and compete, and this, this role of government to maintain those parks, to pay for those parks, is a way to encourage and promote the common good, that all of us as citizens can utilize these spaces, and, um, and so that's a good thing, right? It's a that would be a good thing to encourage places and spaces where families can be together and friends can gather and the government cares for those spaces through tax, through tax dollars. Uh, another way in which Grudem points this out is that it, it's also a justification for giving uh, tax-free status to churches or other nonprofits. 
the, the reason why the U.S. tax code does not tax churches uh, is at least in part because there's an assumption that churches are good for society. And now that may change as time goes on. And that's always actually being fought in the courts, by the way. Like, there's always court cases from atheist groups that want to take the church, churches uh, to task and make us pay taxes and whatever. Okay. But, um, but the, the reason why that has never gone anywhere in the court system and probably won't, uh, at least not anytime super soon, is because there is an assumption that government should benefit or should give benefits towards organizations that promote good and well-being. And churches and other nonprofits do that. Um, and so there's a, there's a sense in which that's not the, the, the argument that the atheist groups always make is that this is the, the state getting involved in the church. Uh, it's not. It's, it's just simply the church or the state saying that the church and the nonprofit or other organizations like that are helping to promote common good for, for the general populace. And so there's, there should be privileges and economic benefits to that. Um, so if an atheist group wants to do something productive for society, they usually don't. Uh, but if they did, then uh, they can benefit and they can start nonprofit organizations like that. They're, it's not like they're being discriminated against because lots of nonprofit organizations get this benefit, not just churches um, or religious groups. So there's, that's why it never really goes anywhere in the courts when it gets, gets in there because they're like, we're not discriminating against you. If you want to do something to be productive, start a nonprofit and you'll get the same benefit. So that's kind of where it lands. All right, fourthly here, uh, governmental officials serve God. Paul says that ruler, the ruler is God's servant for your good and that he is the servant of God. And so um, he also says down in verse six that they are ministers of God. That's an amazing statement actually when you think about what the kind of rulers he's talking about, which are Roman governors and Roman emperors and these people who are just awful towards Christians. Uh, he still calls them ministers of God. Um, what this means is that we should think of government officials as serving God when they punish evil and promote what is good. Okay? They're not serving God in their sinfulness. They're not serving God when they're, when they're breaking the law. They may not even realize that they're servants of God. They certainly don't acknowledge that for the most part. But when they do the function of what God has called them to do, when they punish evil and promote good, they are working for the Lord whether they know it or not. And so this is a strong passage in support of the idea that we should view civil government as a gift from God, something that brings us benefit. Um, although individual people and individual governments can be evil and do evil, the institution of civil government in itself is something very good, a benefit that flows to us from God's infinite wisdom and love. Um, so I, I think I, I put this in here because I think there's, a, there's an impulse at times in us um, that we'd be better off without government. And, and there's, I understand that impulse. I understand why we think that. Um, but it's not actually true. Like we, we do not want to live in a society where there is no rule of law, uh, where there's no one to hold people who are doing evil accountable. We, we don't want to live in that world. Like it's just, it, we may think we do, but, but really if we saw the implications of that, it would be, it'd be a nightmare scenario. Um, but some suggest that the best scenario for society today would be a form of no government or anarchy, uh, but just human liberty. 
Here's the problem with that. People are sinners, okay? That's, that's why this, this will never actually work functionally because the assumption is that anarchy or a full form of libertarianism, now I'm, I'm not saying that some form of libertarianism isn't bad or isn't good. I think that it can be good. Uh, but complete liberty without any restraints, without any confines, uh, would, would really create chaos uh, because people are selfish, and people want what they want. And if we lived in a society where everybody was benevolent and everybody just wanted the best for their neighbor, man, we'd, we'd have a great life. But that's not the world we live in. We know that, right? So every, everything would sound wonderful until you have to fend for yourself and, you know, have your neighbor try to kill you for something that you have, you know. And then all of a sudden it's getting bad, right? So then, then you would want the government to exist, um, but that's, that is something that I think obviously the government should give us the most amount of freedom uh, possible within the realm of promote common good and, and defend people from evil. Those two functions, I think, are the key to a healthy government and otherwise let people go on, go on with their life. That would be my view. But uh, let's keep going here. Government officials are doing good as they carry out their work. We, we, we mentioned this already but you know paul says that they are god's servants for your good so that means that activities that they do when they're doing what god calls them to do is good it's according to god's word and we should be thankful for them um and when they do that of course uh caveat right we we have to be balanced here we we always need to think balanced thoughts um doesn't mean that we should think that everything that, that the ruler does is good uh, doesn't mean that everything government does is good. Um, John the Baptist rebuked Herod, the king of, of, in Israel there, for all the evil that he had done. And then he got his head cut off. So just fun, fun fact there. Um, Daniel uh, told Nebuchadnezzar, uh, break off your sins by practicing righteousness. So Daniel calls out uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. The Old Testament stories, uh, or histories rather, are, are filled with stories of, who did what were, of kings rather, who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The Bible's very clear about that. If you read First and Second Kings, it is just a, a, a terrible list of, of kings who did awful things. And they're not like applauded for that, right? So individual rulers, individual governments can do what is evil. And, and, and yet, when they do what is good, then they are carrying out their responsibility um, and following what God's principle is for government. So we shouldn't be acceptable. It shouldn't be acceptable for governments to just do whatever they want, right? When government officials do wrong and break the law, they should be held to the same standards of that law as everyone else, uh, regardless of their level of power, their wealth, or their influence, right? So, of course... I think we'd all agree with this, right? Like our, the problem is, is that we have a system at times that seems slanted towards the people in power. And, and that's why there's angst. That's why there's frustration, I think, among a lot of us, is that we're, we're seeing a world where, you know what, if you're, in a, if you're a senator or if you're, uh, you know, in a position of power in the government, you can break laws that I can't break. And you're not going to see it second of an ins the inside of a jail cell. But I will. I would if I did the exact same thing. That's, that's a problem. And we should think through uh, ways that we can um, perhaps encourage our legislators to, to do better there in our justice department. But as individual citizens, it's hard. 
It's hard to do that. So we have to entrust ourselves to the Lord uh, in those moments. Uh, Number six, we see that governmental uh, authorities execute God's wrath on wrongdoers. Uh, We've already talked about this. Um, So, but yeah, one of the roles of government is to to take care of those who do what is wrong. Uh, They have a sword and they have a sword for a purpose. They are servants of God in that way. Um, And so the word avenger here in Romans 13 means an agent of punishment. Uh, Here's what's crucial, though, is that that's the role of government. But Paul tells us, as Christians who are living individual Christian lives and within the church, that we should never take personal vengeance on the wrong that has been done to us. Rather, we should allow the wrongdoer to be punished by the wrath of God. Now, that's from Romans 12. Okay, so Romans 12, Paul says, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Then in chapter 13, he tells us there's a government that God has put in place for this purpose. Just a few sentences later, he explains that God's wrath, which is what we're to leave our vengeance to, we're to leave the vengeance to the wrath of God, but God's wrath is against wrongdoers as it's carried out by civil government. That, so God uses civil government to inflict uh, punishment on those who have done us wrong. So we don't have to seek out some sort of weird vigilante justice for ourselves. We need to trust that the Lord will work uh, through the civil government. And we're not always going to see justice on this side of heaven. right? There will be times when we seek, uh, seek justice through the proper means and it doesn't actually happen. And that's, again, we've got to trust the Lord in those moments. Um, so similarly, just as kind of a, another passage to, to discuss here real quickly is First Peter 2. Peter basically expresses the same view as, as Paul towards the government. He says, be subject uh, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. So two different writers at two different times, Paul and Peter, they're both saying very similar things. Um, so to, to overview, Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 um, means that we should submit to the governing authorities and obey the laws of the land that we live in except in certain circumstances, okay? Again, just as we talked about with parents and their children or children and their parents, there are situations in which we don't have to submit to government. And it's the same, same issue as we discussed. Um, is it ever okay to disobey civil government? Yes, it is in some circumstances. God does not hold people responsible to obey a government when obedience would mean directly obeying a command from God himself. Okay, so that's the key. That's the caveat in this. And, and we have to recognize um, that most of the time, what we're being asked to do from our government is not a direct violation of God's commands. Because God just told us in, in Romans 13, we should pay our taxes. So we can't fuss about that. We got to do it. Right, that's, we don't like it, but we, we got to do it. Um, there, there's very few things that the government is going to require of us that is a direct violation of a command of God. Now, it can happen. It can absolutely happen. And, and so we, we need to recognize that when that does happen, uh, we are permitted to obey God and not government. 
And there's a passage that talks about this. Um, I think it's in, uh, let's see. Yeah, in, in the early church, um, Jesus has now been ascended into heaven. He has left his apostles to preach the word. And in Acts chapter 4 and 5, we see that the apostles are preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. The, the governing officials in Jerusalem arrest them, um, begin to threaten them, and tell them that they cannot speak of these things. And then uh, Peter responds by saying, we must obey God rather than men. Uh, so they, they just go, well, listen, we're going to obey God because Jesus told us to speak these truths. Um, he told us that at the, in the Great Commission, right? And so if the government ever decided, uh, and it's pr- not likely to happen in our lifetime, probably in, in our country, but there's lots of countries where uh, cr- Christianity is outlawed or it's very hostile towards it. And so if we're told you can't proclaim God's word, well, we've been told we must proclaim God's word. So this is an area where we've got to push back and be willing to face the consequences. And there may be consequences, right? I mean, Paul, I mean, Peter and, and the other apostles were arrested. They, they were put in prison. They, many of them were killed later on as time went on. Uh, they, they lost a lot to obey the Lord, but, but that's, um, that's worth, it's worth obeying the Lord over doing something that he clearly calls us not to do. So uh, that's an example um, I've got another quote from Calvin here. I'm not going to read it all, but basically what he's, what he talks about in this is that, um, we, there are times when there are exceptions to the rule of obe- of obeying our civil authority. Um, and so basically I'll just read a little part of this. He says, and how absurd would it be that in satisfying man, you should incur the displeasure of him for whose sake you obey the men themselves. The Lord, therefore, is the king of kings. If they command anything against him, let it go unesteemed or don't listen to it. So basically, Calvin's point is what we've just been saying, that God takes precedence over what the government or our governing officials may ask us to do. And if they do, we have to recognize we have a higher king, a higher authority. Um, we have the king of kings we must listen to. There's, there's a bunch of examples of this uh, in recent days. I, I share one. Uh, it's probably been one you've heard of. It's, it's kind of made the rounds where there was a Christian baker in Colorado who refused to bake a cake, um, and it became this big thing. It got all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, the problem was is that it was a, a, a same-sex couple that wanted this, this cake artist to make, make a cake and decorate it um, in celebration of their wedding. Well, this was something that this person religiously opposed, was opposed to. It wasn't that this person was, this is, this is crucial to the case, is that this person wasn't refusing to serve these people in every way. Uh, the same-sex couple had bought many things from this baker. They had been regular customers. Um, th- there, was, there were no problems with selling them baked goods and allowing them to, to, to even, I think she even made um, like birthday cakes for them at times and those sort of things. Um, but, but when it came to this wedding cake, she, she couldn't do it. Um, and she wouldn't allow the government of Colorado to force her to express herself artistically uh, through that First Amendment issue, um, and she didn't make the cake. And so then she got all kinds of legal trouble. She, ultimately, her case went to the Supreme Court, and they did side with her. They sided with her, uh, amazingly. 
And um, doesn't mean that she hasn't had a whole lot of problems in her life. And I'm not even saying we can't discuss, you know, whether that was appropriate or not. Like we, we I think every person on an individual level has to make these decisions. Um, some some Christians I know said, well, I would have just made the cake because, okay, I mean, it's it's a cake, right? And, and others would definitely would agree with her that she shouldn't be forced to do something that is against her uh, her beliefs. And so the, ultimately the Supreme Court did did side with her, and I think they made the right decision. Uh, and that, their decision was on the grounds of the freedom of expression that's protected in the First Amendment. And so they kind of pointed back to that and said, hey, she doesn't have to express herself in, in any way she doesn't want to. She has freedom of expression, and so she doesn't have to bake the cake if, if it's against her moral uh, beliefs. And so that's just one example of somebody who, I'm not even saying that I understand all the ins and outs of, of that situation. Uh, I'm not even saying that you should make the exact same choice if, if it's uh, uh, on, on your plate. But, but that was one example of someone who decided to take um, a position that the government was basically, in Colorado, the state-level government was trying to force her to do something um, that she felt she couldn't do. And so she stood up against it. Um, another question we can ask on this is, is it ever right to attempt to overthrow or obtain freedom from an existing government? Um, this is a, this is an interesting question and hopefully one we don't actually ever have to, you know, live to see, uh, right? But this, I think the answer to this question is that, um, maybe, (laughs) like, uh, maybe it depends. Like, I think that if you're genuinely under, uh, I think I think the argument that Grudem would make is that if the existing government is truly committing crimes, like crimes against God's law or crimes against the laws of the land against its citizens, uh, then it's appropriate. I think that as I read through his stuff, I think that's where he would land. And so one of the questions that can come up, and this is obviously something we can discuss more uh, hypothetically, uh, it's not really a, a relevant issue today. But what it, when you get into this question, a lot of people raise the question of whether it was right for the early American colonies to declare independence from, God, from Great Britain. And this is something that I think, again, like, I'll just say this on the front end. I love America. Okay, I love America. I'm so happy to live here. Um, but I think this is an interesting question that was it, was it a violation of Romans 13 for the, for the colonists, or the founding fathers, to declare war against uh, England for independence. And Christians are split on this, like, actually. It's, it's interesting. And, again, I'm, I'm grateful for the country we have. I, obviously, we live where we live, and we can't go back in time, and there's no reason to. Um, but, but it's interesting that some Christians uh, basically say it was wrong, and some Christians say it wasn't wrong. And... Uh, one of the Christians who says it was probably wrong is actually John MacArthur. That one shocked me, actually, when I found this one out. Um, John MacArthur's not exactly a guy I thought would agree on this. But um, but he said, essentially, that rebelling against the British government back then, 250 years ago in, in the past, it's what's done is done. But he said that it was probably a contradiction or contrary to the t- clear teachings and commands of Romans 13. So MacArthur would say that the United States, this is a direct quote, the United States was actually born out of a violation of the New Testament principles, and any blessings that God has bestowed on America have come in spite of that disobedience by the founding fathers. 
That's, that's what MacArthur says. Now you can agree or disagree because Grudem disagrees, uh, actually. And um, he, he would say that he's convinced, here's a quote from, from Grudem, after studying the historical situation and the principles of scripture, that the American Revolution was morally justified in the sight of God. Um, uh, the reason that a number of colonists thought they were justified to rebel against the British monarchy is that it is morally right for a lower government official to protect the citizens in his care from a higher official who is committing crimes against these citizens. So Grudem's view is that the King of England and the Parliament and all that system over there were committing crimes against the colonists. And so then the, the leaders on the colony side had a moral obligation to stand up against that higher authority and fight back. Um, I, I actually agree with Grudem in principle here. I think that lower authorities do have uh, the right and the, probably the obligation to protect the citizens that are under their care. So governors uh, should probably step in and help when the federal government kind of goes crazy and does something insane. Uh, govern, governors of, of the states have the constitutional right to push back against the federal government. It's actually a great system um, that, that we have established here because there is a balance of powers. Um, the federal government has to be accountable to the states. The states have, can have the authority to, to band together and, and sue the federal government and work with the courts and all those things. That's all good. I think that that's, a, that's probably a modern application of what Grudem is suggesting was happening in uh, two, you know, 250 so years ago. But um, I'm not sure, because I read, I read all of Piper's, I mean, all of uh, Grudem's stuff on this, and I'm not sure that he actually defends his view that the, that the government in England was committing crimes. He just kind of says it. He doesn't actually show any crimes that were committed. Um, so I actually don't, I'm not sure about that. I think uh, as I've as I've studied on my own and like studied the uh, the reign of King George the third, who was the king, the last king of America, there, um, I think he was a pretty incompetent leader. But I I don't think he was a tyrant. I, I really I, I think there's a there's flimsy evidence historically to su- to suggest that he was tyrannical. Um, he was pretty. If anything, he was actually two hands off. Um, and in some ways, so I do, but, but here's, I think the bottom line, what is done is done, right? I mean, we're never going to go back and we shouldn't go back and it's, God has blessed this country greatly. So whether or not we, we started as an act of rebellion against Romans 13 or not, I think is kind of irrelevant. Um, we are what we are and God has used it. Um, and we have to live within, within the borders that we, that we live in as people who live in 2023. So um, I've got a few things we'll just go real quickly through. Calvin uh, says also that a lower authority should protect um, people from higher authorities. Um, Grudem's perspective is that the lower government had that responsibility to defend the people from the tyranny of the king. My personal view is I, I, think, I, I think today I lean more, more towards MacArthur's view than Grudem's, but uh, that could change tomorrow and it doesn't really matter. But I do think I don't. I just don't think the tyranny of King George III is what Grudem says it is. Um, I think he's a little bit mis, misled on that, but that's okay. Um, so, so if MacArthur and I are right theoretically today, what should we do? What would I suggest? Nothing. Okay. <laughs> like, 
what's done is done. I mean, we're, we're, and I love, and I do, I am grateful for this country and the freedoms we have. Um, watching all of this crazy stuff unfold uh, uh, through the COVID years, I, I'm grateful that we live here and not in England, honestly, because they, they handled things quite crazily, even worse than we did, as it's hard to believe as that is. But um, we, we can be grateful for the, for the freedoms we do have here. It's, it's a great gift. Um, so, but let's get back to the broader question. What about rebelling against a government that's truly committing crimes against its people? So we can put aside whether Grudem is right about the, the crimes of King George or not. Um, but what about today? If there's a government that is actually committing crimes or atrocities or oppressions against its people, like think about Iran and how they're treating women over there. Think about the uh, you know, Soviet Union and back in those days and the, the oppression that was happening there. Uh, is it okay for us to rebel in that case? And I think it can be appropriate. Um, I think it can. I think if we can make a clear case that um, these things are morally wrong, that are, the things that are being done, um, then the people and their and their lower leaders and lower representatives should have a responsibility uh, to do that. Okay, real quickly here, let's talk about as we wrap this up. Um, I want to finish with what what the government uh, can't do. Okay, we've been talking about the role that government plays. Um, but we should also discuss the limitations that the government has. There, there's a lot, actually, but we, we can just hit a few highlights. Um, the first is this, that personal salvation is a work of God, not the government. It's so important that we understand this, that the government is used by God to promote good and to uh, dis, uh, dissuade bad. Right, that's their function. That's what really they're called to do: promote good and and prohibit that which is bad. But the government cannot save people in in a, a genuine way. That only comes from God through Christ. And so, um, the civil government, even a very good one, cannot save people from their sins. Uh, they can't. Um, for that can only come through personal faith in Jesus Christ, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Um, only God can give you a new heart, a new spirit in uh, Ezekiel 36, 26. Only God can say, I will put my law into your minds and write them on your hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So um, we should never put our trust or ultimate hope in government, to change a human heart or to make a, a nation of sinful people into a nation of holy and righteous people before God. The government can't do that. The government has limitations. Um, only God can change the heart and only God uh, can bring salvation into someone's life. And it is actually God's design, not for the church, not for the government rather, to be uh, primarily promoting spiritual things, but the, but the church as it proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ and as people personally put their faith in him. That's, that's where we see real change. And so I, I know there's, a, there's always this push that, you know, if only government can get more involved in, in morality or more involved in helping people make the right decisions, uh, then it'll just get better. And it just, it won't, it, not without Christ, not without Christ actually coming in and changing hearts. Government can promote good, 
government can dissuade people from bad, um, but they can't ultimately change a human heart. Second thing I think we need to recognize here is that inward transformed people are necessary for a transformed society. Um, Christians who seek to influence government must also remember that inwardly transformed people are needed if they're ever going to see a transformed society. Um, Merely passing good laws and having good government will never be enough to change our society. Um, That is just... That is just the truth. Like we need people to be transformed by the gospel broadly if we're going to see society changed and transformed. And so it's not that we shouldn't pass good laws. And it's not that we shouldn't have good government or long for that or hope for that or vote people in who will help to bring that. But that in and of itself is not going to actually bring the results we want. And I think there's a there's a real fallacy that we believe uh, and it, always, it comes up every four years whenever we're about to elect a new president. Every time. It's like we've, been, we've all been through these enough, right, where we, you, you have a guy who you think is going to be the answer to the question of, okay, how do we get our country back? And how do we save this? And how do we do? And there's always like the savior language that kind of comes along with the political thing. And the fact is it's not, it never works. It's never worked. And it's not going to work. Uh, because that's not how God changes hearts. He changes hearts through the gospel. Um, the people of Israel in the Old Testament had very good laws from God himself, right? And But those laws did not keep them from going astray. And eventually, those people br- had brought God's judgment on themselves and were exiled out of their land. Um, the laws did not change their hearts. And so... We should never believe, and that's like direct laws from God himself. And if that, doesn't, if that didn't work um, to make those societies what they should be, then, then there's no chance for us to, to do that. So we need to stop like trusting in that. Um, the fact is that politics run downstream from culture. Okay, that's, so running downstream. So culture is what runs down the stream and that's what leads to politics. And our, our politics come from our broader culture. So if we want to see a nation changed, if we want to see culture changed, we need to see people individually become devoted followers of Jesus. Um, so I, I think that it's not wrong for us to pursue change on a government level. It's definitely not. I think it's actually a good thing for, for Christians to be engaged in local government in particular. Um, I'm I'm very cynical about federal government. I think it's probably too far gone uh, to be changed. Um, but on the local level, on the school board level, on the county board level, on you know city councils where people actually live and function, I think if Christians can get involved in those things and, and help influence things for the good, awesome. But that's, that's not even the full answer. Even that's not going to ultimately change. Only the people being changed by Jesus is going to change society. So I I think we we need to just have a reorientation in our, in our um, minds. And I I think politics has become kind of a, a religious cult for, for a lot of Christians um, where we've actually, we've actually staked so much of our hope in that um, rather than in our savior. We need to, we need to just kind of 
take a breath and relax and, and move back to the Bible and, and think about what Christ has called us to do as we share the gospel with other people and see him change, uh, change lives. So lastly here, I, I want to just um, hang in. One long slide here, but I want to emphasize this, that Christians have had influences on governments positively throughout history. Low, individual Christians have been used by God to impact the, the way in which government has functioned throughout history. There's a book called How Christianity Changed the World uh, from 2004 by uh, Alvin Schmidt. Um, and he points out a, a number of things. And I'll just highlight some of them for you. Um, he talks about how the spread of Christianity and Christian influence on government was primarily responsible for the outlawing of infanticide and, a chi- and child abandonment and abortion in the Roman Empire. And that happened in about 374 AD. So there was rampant abortion, infanticide, and, and abandonment of children uh, in the Roman days, in the 300s and earlier. And the Christians came along and actually started to make a, a serious impact on that. Now next week we're going to talk about those issues a little more in detail as we get to the next commandment. But but Christians had a huge role in helping the Roman government outlaw those practices. Um, they also helped abolish the brutal battles to the death uh, by the gladiators uh, in 404. As more and more people in the Roman Empire became Christians, less and less people were interested in watching these slaves hack each other to pieces. Like That didn't happen because the, the government just made a law. It was because the temperament of the people changed through Christ. And so eventually it became not a profitable business to have these slaves, you know, you know, entertain people by killing each other. And so it stopped. Um, the ending of the cruel punishment of branding the faces of criminals was ended by Christians in 315. So think about that branding faces of criminals. That's brutal. And it was ended by Christians. Uh, the institution of prison reforms like segregating male and female prisoners was ended in the Roman time by 361. So right, you don't want to have men and women locked into the same prison cells. That's a recipe for terror, right? And so that was, pra- that was passed by Christians. The outlawing of pedophilia and, uh, was, was ended by Christians. The granting of property rights and other protections to women was led by Christians. Uh, the banning of polygamy, which still exists in some Muslim countries today, um, it was was led by Christians. The prohibition of burning alive widows in India was ended by Christians in 1829. Um, the ending of the painful and crippling practice of blinding young binding rather young women's feet in China ended in 1912 because of Christians. Persuading government officials to begin a system of public schools in Germany in the 18th century, uh, 16th century and advancing the idea of compulsory education or required education of all children uh, in European countries uh, was led by Christians. So the idea that we want all children to learn that, you know, hey, in fact, I would, I would add to this list a couple things. Uh, literacy was because of Christians. Um, the, the printing press was invented by Gutenberg, who is a devout Christian, printed the Bible as the first book ever printed on the printing press, the Bible began to spread throughout Europe um, through that printing press, and people were encouraged to read because of the Reformation. 
Uh, the Roman Catholic Church in the 1500s wanted people to not be able to read so that they had to continue to hear uh, the word of God from the priests and only the priests. And the Roman and the Re- Reformation leader said, no, no, we need to actually let people read the Bible for themselves. And that led to widespread literacy growing in the world. Um, and then one more, uh, this is, you probably are aware of this as well, but uh, the British slave trade was ended uh, through the leadership of a devout Christian named Will- William Wilberforce. So Christians were, at least on the European side of the issue, were on the forefront of ending uh, the slave trade, uh, at least the British slave trade. And so, uh, again, just a lot of good has come from Christians living their faith out, influencing people, seeing that change hearts. And, and I, I don't think those days are all behind us. I, I really think if the church and the individual Christians within the church begin to take their faith seriously, walk in, in this newness of life we've been given, we will slowly but surely see people change. And that will slowly but surely, I believe, uh, lead to more societal change. Yeah, we've got a big uphill battle ahead of us to, to see that happen, but there's no reason for us to despair. I think we, can, we should at least be engaged in it, even if we, uh, even if we think it's a, it's a hard battle to, to, to see one. I think it's still worth pursuing, and I think that's really what the church should be about. Um, rather than being solely concerned about electing a person who's going to ultimately disappoint us in the end. So uh, I think that's a better way forward when we, when we think about it. So anyways, that's my, those are my two cents there on that. Um, next week, we'll talk about protecting human life, and we'll get into that. But are there any questions or thoughts or anything you guys want to share before we head out? We've got a few minutes so, until we hit 8 o'clock, so we can head out early if, you, if you'd like. But any thoughts on any of this? No? Okay, well, I'm here. I'll I'll be here if you want to chat about it. So cool. I'll pray for us, and then we'll let you guys head out. Uh, Lord, thanks for giving us tonight, and thank you for for the gospel and how it has changed uh, our lives. We pray that our hope would be in in Christ, ultimately, uh, not not in governments, not in any human authorities, as much as we ought to uh, submit to human authorities as you lead us to. Uh, we trust you uh, to do the great work of changing hearts as we uh, walk out of here and continue in our lives, going back to work and going into our neighborhoods and our and uh, among our neighbors. We pray for your help in these things, and we ask that you would meet us in it. In Jesus' name, amen.